Um, let's get into our study. If you have uh, a Bible from the coffee house, we are on page 882. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. I want to set the stage uh, in, a, in a couple of ways. Um, last week, we started a series called If You Are. If You Are. And we introduced this concept of the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Do you remember what the wilderness is from last week? We said in, in the text, it's not just a place. It's not just like a, a desert with kind of arid. It's, it's a place of becoming. It's a place of testing, of tempting, of it's not going to be the same after we're done here. Into the wilderness. This morning, I, w- I want to invite you to bring that wilderness experience into this week. Um, last week, uh, we ended with a challenge for prayer, for fasting, and for solitude. And it was really encouraging. Even this morning, I was caught by somebody. But throughout the week, I was caught by people who, who started saying, thank you for asking us to fast. I've never done that before. I did my first kind of full day fast. And I heard some really neat feedback. Some people said it was beautiful. It was kind of eye-opening. Other people said it was troubling. It was difficult. Some people said, you know, it was great moments. But either way, it was really cool to hear how God showed up. But part of our reflective questions were, what is your wilderness? What's, what's the difficult thing? What's the season of testing that you've either been through or are in right now? That the Lord may be training, teaching, have this place of becoming for you. So, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days it says that he was tempted by the devil. So what we see in in our wilderness season is that God has a lesson for us and he wants to train us, but there's another agent involved who wants to steal and kill and destroy, and he often uses the wilderness to do it. And it's this character of the devil. And we talked about how the devil uses our moments and times of vulnerability, and he leverages them for his own ends. And so in the wilderness, we're often tested by God for good things, but in the wilderness, we're often tempted by the devil, the evil one, for destruction. And this temptation is not random. It's strategic. In the temptations of Jesus, we showed that it's not asking Jesus to do bad things. It's asking Jesus to question who he really is. It's about identity. When our identity is threatened and we feel insecure, we have some kind of normal ways of coping. When our identity is threatened, we pursue appetite, we pursue ambition, and we pursue approval. Now, one of those is probably your heart's go-to, but all of them are a web of desire and, and of grasping for something that happens in times of testing. Today, we're going to explore that appetite piece, so let me kind of set the stage. Um, you know the song by Queen, I Want It All and I Want It Now? You know that song? This is like the um, advertiser's favorite song. It's on so many commercials. I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. And then, you know, the strum. And There's a guy sitting on his couch. His legs are popped up. Behind him is this massive self-portrait of just his face. And it's Queen is playing in the background. I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. And he's just ordering dozens of dishes from restaurants all over town. And he's just sitting in the privacy of his home, and he desires food, and his appetite is stirred. And our culture's anthem is that if you have an appetite, go get it. Here's, here's actually a quote 
If you want it all, you can get it all. Grubhub. It's like some of you are like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm actually on Grubhub now ordering. They're going to meet me at the door on my way out. But that's not the only appetite where this culture of consumption happens kind of in our world. In fact, I think that most people use the word binging more for screen time and Netflix than we do for food and for drink. Verizon uses the same song, I want it all and I want it now, for their streaming services. T-Mobile uses it for their devices. We just want stuff. We want it now. There's immediacy. There's instant gratification. They say, you want more? You need more, so get more. Isn't that weird? Not the lights, but... All right. I want it all. I want it now. And they say, you want more, you need more, so get more. Okay, that's the message. That's the message of the world around us. Every day, you turn on a football game or March Madness, somebody is saying, you, you can just consume it. You can have it. If you want it, go get it. This is like the Amazon Prime world. Somebody doesn't like it. <laughs> Others are like logged in right now. But the thing about Amazon Prime is, is it's faster than other options. And it's cheaper than other options. And it comes with all of these other amenities. One of my favorite comedians is a guy named Gary Goldman. He's talking about telephone 1.0. You know, like our grandmother's telephone that had the cord in the kitchen you could only stay within three feet. And he says, we want all our music on our phone. And they say, you want all your music on your phone? He said, excuse me, did I say all my music on the phone? I mean all the music on my phone. Every song ever on my phone now. And they say, okay, we can do that. How much are you willing to pay? Senator, here's my offer. Nothing. <laughs> it's just, we just want more, right? With music, streaming. Tech, stuff, food, drink, and of course sex too. We live in a culture where if you can fantasize about it, you can find it immediately for free. But the thing about Amazon Prime is also true about sex and pornography. That the more we consume, the cheaper it gets, the faster it gets. So if you just think about the economics of pornography, it, it cheapens everything sexually. Because it's, it's just there all the time. And so you can only do a couple of things. You can increase demand, which we are, or you can cheapen it. And so what, what ends up happening is like the trickle-down economics of pornography mean that it changes everything. It changes our what shows up in commercials and TV shows. It changes how women dress in the fashion industry because we have to keep up with this currency because sexual imagery is so cheap that women and some men, they're, they're put in these situations where it feels like our, a real body can't satisfy, a real relationship isn't worth it. More, appetite, if you want it, you can have it. I want it all. And I want it now. And I, I know that all of us are kind of looking around thinking, but that's not, that's not even who I want to be. Last commercial. Six weeks ago, Super Bowl Sunday, they, 
They air this 30-second ad. It cost them $7 million to get 30 seconds of our attention. It's a travel company. I won't tell you which one. It feels weird to criticize ads. Um, anyway, here we go. This is the entire ad. Stuff. We love stuff. And there's some really great stuff out there. But I doubt any of us will look back on our lives and think, I wish I had bought an even thinner TV, found a lighter light beer, or had an even smarter smartphone. You feel that? Advertisers know that. They say, do you think any of us will look back on our lives and regret the things we didn't buy or the places we didn't go? It sounds a little bit like a soda company calling out a cigarette company saying like, you know, that's not good for you. (laughs) But is this what we want? Is this, we think this will satisfy as we step out of this culture of consumption, I want it all, I want it now. Who are we becoming? The truth is you are what you eat. You become what you behold. And so when it comes to food, I, would, I know the majority of Americans, but probably the majority of this room, we actually want to eat less, not more. We just feel trapped. We want to lose weight. We don't want more food. But here we are ordering GoPub again. Um, screens? Tech? There was a recent Washington Post headline that was talking about those screen time notifications. On my phone, I get them on Sundays. Here's the headline. Our, weekly, our iPhone weekly screen time reports are through the roof, and people are horrified. We don't like it. We don't want that. We don't want to become that person. Or sex, porn. Nearly every man or woman that I've ever listened to or talked to about pornography and masturbation, they don't want to do it. Here's a time cover story. A growing number of young men are convinced that their sexual response is because their brains are virtually marinated in porn when they were adolescents. These young men feel like unwitting guinea pigs in a largely unmonitored decade-long experiment in sexual condition. That's not what we want. It feels more like slavery. It feels more like a trap. But how do you break it? What about travel experiences? Uh, last week in our welcome home group, there was a young mom who read about contemplative rhythms, slowing down, solitude, silence. And she said, that's what I want. We don't, we don't want to be that. We look at the culture around us and think, oh no, what are we becoming? But then we look at our own habits and we think, oh no, what am I becoming? In this culture of appetite and more... And if you want it, you can satisfy it. It ends up that we become and we do the things that we don't want to do. So what do we do about this, this problem? I think I want to invite you to bring that to Jesus today in Luke chapter 4. Because appetite has this way of overpowering. It has a way of testing who we really are and who we're becoming. Um, and so some of you may have wondered, are the temptations of Jesus relevant? The first one, we're going to look at it today. Turn these stones to bread. 
And I've got to say, growing up, I never had that temptation, right? I, I never had the desire to turn stones to bread. Now, there were occasions where I wanted to throw stones at my brothers, but I did not have that temptation. But there's something in this temptation that actually is quite relevant to me because I know what it's like to hunger, and to crave, to desire, to have an appetite for something that can be satisfied in my own power but it actually turns me into somebody that I don't want to be. Jesus endures that test and he passes it. Let's work through what that might mean for us today. All right, so Luke chapter four, he's led by the spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days, it says that he is tempted by the devil. And during that time, it says he ate nothing. He ate nothing. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Okay, here we are, hunger craving, desire, appetite. Whatever your appetite is, bring it here into this text. Um, this, this language of hunger and desire, it's really a common theme in Scripture. People hunger and desire lots of things in Scripture. Um, James, when he's talking about temptation, he says, no one should say that they're tempted by God because each person, when he's tempted, is drawn away by his own desires. Our desires are underneath our temptations. Our hungers, our wants, our appetites are underneath the temptations. They are not very often the temptations themselves. They're underneath them. There's something that we desire. And it doesn't mean that the desire is sinful. Many desires are God-given good things. The desire for food, which is the focal point of this. The desire for drink, the desire for sex, the desire for companionship and for approval. Those are good God-given things, but they're wrong ways to go about them. They can be excessive, they can be misdirected, and they can turn people away from the Lord and on inward on ourselves. And so here is the temptation. Here's our focus for today. It's just two verses, and we're, we'll kind of bounce around, and we'll hopefully have some, some practical things for us at the end. We'll start with verse 3, where it says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. Now, I want to add another background piece here from Genesis chapter 3. Just kind of as a matter of framing, listen or, or turn to Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. In our text it says, the devil said. So how does, how does the devil attack us? Often, the devil will attack through deceptive ideas, which are, are lies. They're not true. They're lies about who we are and what we need. And these lies, the deceptive ideas, play on our disordered desires. Deceptive ideas, disordered desires, the, the fleshly part of us. 
which are then normalized by the fallen world around us. Deceptive ideas, disordered desires in the fallen world around us, and it just becomes normal. It becomes habitual. We become the things that we desire. But the devil said to him, and so the battleground here is the voices in our head. And I think part of our skill, we have to learn two things. One, how to recognize the voice of the devil. And two, how to recognize the voice of the Father. Um, the, fa- the devil's voice here is, is telling lies. And they're lies in, in three areas. He will lie about our theology. He will lie about our identity. And he will lie about the activity. Okay? Theology, identity, activity. About God, about me, and about the thing that, that I'm doing. Let's, let's come back to that in just a minute. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. This is the heart of temptation. The accusing of God and the exploiting of self. The theology and identity piece. The accusing of God. What I think the, the devil is doing here is he's drawing attention to the circumstances. Remember, he's in the wilderness. He's drawing attention to the lack. Remember that your wilderness time? Maybe you reflected on it this week in your time of fasting and prayer. But in my wilderness time, I know that the Lord was bringing up questions inside me about his goodness and mine. Has that ever happened to you? In the wilderness, the devil will bring up accusations of God's goodness and mine. The doubting of identity. He starts playing on this. And for Jesus, he says, if you are the son of God. Now, could Jesus turn stones to bread? Yeah. He says, I can make children of Abraham out of dust. He can handle stones to bread. In Luke chapter 9, he's going to feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fishes. And it says everybody is full and they had many left over. Jesus can handle this. He has the capacity and so this, the Satan, the, the devil, is not tempting him as if he can't do it. Now, some people say this temptation is about proving yourself to, to others. But the problem with that view is that nobody else is around to view this. And he doesn't have to prove it to Satan. Instead, what Satan is doing is he's playing on who Jesus is. If you are the Son of God, and so he's not expressing doubt, but he's, he's taking up the implications of who he is. If you are the son of God, then why are you hungry in the wilderness? What he's actually questioning is his circumstances. You are hungry. You can do something about it. So just do it. You want it all? You want it now? Just do it. The hidden assumption is that God's son should not suffer, Right? God's son, a a child of God, should not have to go through this. Does that question ever come up in your life? The hidden assumption is that if you're really loved by God, you wouldn't have to go through this. Why do bad things happen to good people? God wants you to be fed, so why are you hungry? And so in the accusation of God, and it becomes this exploiting of self, just do it. You're owed, you're entitled, it's your right, it's your, it's, think of Esau. (laughs) It's your birthright, you're owed it, but how quickly can we exchange it for something in a moment? So, he says, 
doubt your identity, and then work out the implications. If you are a child of God, you shouldn't have to go through this. But this leads, it, it has that doubting God piece too, doesn't it? Does God really not want you to have this? This is, this is the background of the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Well, no, he didn't say that. He told me not to eat this fruit. Why? Because when you eat of it, then you'll die. And, oh, no, you won't. He's holding out on you. He has a good thing that he doesn't want you to experience. God will not hold out good things from you. Just take it. This is the test, I think. Man, there's a, there's a balance here. Because the mark of compelling faith today is authentic. It's real. It's open with its struggles. It can voice hurt and pain and accusation to God. A faith that cannot do that isn't compelling to anybody. And it, it may not even kind of have substance. But how quickly can that, that lament-filled faith turn into an accusation-filled faith? How quickly can a season of wilderness turn into a season of deconstruction where there's no looking back for faith? But Jesus, he has a different way of approaching this temptation, this test in the wilderness. Jesus understands that being the Son of God doesn't remove suffering. It demands it. Hebrews 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does it mean to be a son or a daughter of God? To be a son of God does not mean that we are exempt from hunger from suffering, from circumstances of testing. To be a son, here, here's one commentary. He says, the devil tried to convince Jesus that God wanted something better for him than what self-denial would bring. Okay, step out of that. So the devil is working in his head to accuse God and to exploit self for the sake of, for the sake of bread. If you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. He's not proving this to anybody. He's not proving it to the devil. Instead, what he's actually doing is using his own power as the Son of God for his own ends instead of being obedient to the Father. You are here for you, not the Father. Being the Son of God should have benefits, not just burdens. This is not the way of sonship. So the question is, what does it mean to be a son or a daughter of God? Um, look. let me illustrate come back for this okay if I've lost you so far uh, you remember the story of Job Job is a man who's put uh, through the test because of the devil the Satan right it, it's the same kind of idea that he's, he's put through a season it's not wilderness but it's very much like it it's a test and Job loses everything in his test you remember what Job's friends say. Job, if you were really a child of God loved by the Father, this wouldn't be happening to you. You wouldn't have these boils on your skin. You wouldn't have these losses in your family. And you wouldn't have just this, this devastating annihilation of your family. But it says that Job tore his clothes and he fell on the dirt and there in the dirt, it says that he worshipped. And he said, the Lord gave, 
and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, I was looking for Kelsey. Uh, one of my most significant wilderness moments uh, happened in our first pregnancy. Um, Twelve weeks pregnant, we go on a baby tour. We're going to tell my family. We're going to tell her family in Chattanooga and Louisville. And so it's just party. It's party. You get to a city and there's a big celebration. There's a new life. It's our, our first baby. Um, but at the celebration in Louisville, um, after the, the party that night, um, there's complications with the pregnancy. We go into the ER and uh, we've lost the baby. And then they, so they took Kelsey for some procedures. And they put me in a room by myself, which was the loneliest, loneliest room I've ever been in. Um, but the Lord gave me an extraordinary gift in that room by myself. Um, instead of charging God with wrong, instead of the Lord allowing the evil one to accuse my God who loved me, instead the Lord protected me and he gave me these words. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a Bible in the room. I look up Job. And I'm reflecting on what has happened. And the loss that I feel. But, but the circumstances didn't change my belovedness. The circumstances didn't change my sonship. Did they call them into question? No doubt. Remember, do y'all know the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord? <sighs> After that, it's just, it's just heart-wrenching to kind of sing that. Not because it's not true, um, but because it is. In the wilderness, we are tested, and our theology is tested. Is God good? It's not just our theology, our identity is tested. Am I beloved? Am I a child of God? If I were a child of God, this shouldn't be happening. If God were who he says he is, why am I experiencing this? Wasn't our last wilderness? It's the same, same echo. This is, this is the echo of scripture. And this is the echo of Adam and Eve in the garden. You desire something. Is God holding out on you? You're hungry, you desire food, you desire wisdom, you desire something. Take it. This word, take it, is a recurring word in some of the, the, 
the most obvious kind of memorable sins of the Old Testament, somebody is taking something. They're exploiting themselves. But when they take it, then they give it to somebody else. Eve, it says that she took the fruit, she ate it. And then what does she do? She gives it to Adam. There's this, this echo of Israel in the wilderness here where they, they just want bread, they want water, they want quail. And in Psalm 78, which Marcus read for us, it says that the Lord satisfied their craving. But it didn't give them life. Eve takes the fruit, and it doesn't make her wise. It leads to this toxin in creation. So there's this temptation. The temptation of Jesus isn't merely to do something bad. It, the temptation of Jesus is to give up your calling, your identity, in exchange for something short-sighted. Yes, you, the temptation to pornography, the temptation to overindulgence. Yes, we can say those are, God doesn't want those for you. But the temptation of Jesus is not to do those things. It's to give up his calling as the son of God. He has a special mission from his father. Jesus doesn't do things because he wants it. He doesn't even do things because other people want it. He does things because his father wants it. This is, this is the lesson of Jesus in the wilderness. He doesn't use his power to meet his own needs. He's not building a brand. He doesn't use his power to meet other people's needs. He's not a social worker. He uses his power to do the will of his father. And he is the son of God who came to be a servant of all. That is the way of true sonship. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions... They're not, from the, they're not from the Father, but they are from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's some toxic prosperity gospel that says that if you are a child of God, you should not have to experience suffering and hardship. It is not true. It is of the devil. It is his, it is his heart's temptation for us. It is deceptive ideas that play on disordered desires. And it is not true. It leads us into that enslaving trap of more, of appetite. And we become the people that we don't actually want to be because we give in to the thing that's short-sighted. But notice what Jesus does. Answers it. He names it to tame it. He responds to temptation. Do you remember in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's talking about the, uh, the armor of God. And he says, I want you to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? But it, it's not the word logos. Um, just a few kind of technical Greek words. It's not logos. It's not the normal word for word. It's rhema, where we get our word remark. Remark is a spoken word. Take up the spoken word and answer the accusations of God and self Take up the word of God. He says, it is written. 
Jesus is so saturated in scripture that it comes out in the wilderness in this season of testing. But we should not overlook the fact that the same resources that are available to Jesus in the wilderness are still available to us in our wilderness. Jesus overcame the temptations with, with the same material that we still have access to today. This is, this is pretty crazy to me. Because in the wilderness, you would expect God to show up in an extraordinary way for Jesus. For Jesus to say, no, I just heard from my father. He told me to say this to you. That's not what he says. He says it was written 2,000 years ago. Jesus is pointing to scripture, not to the spoken word of God. He's pointing to scripture, not the experience of God. He's pointing to something that has withstood the test and is still here with us. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And then in Matthew, you know it, it goes on to say, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Bread alone brings us back to the scene in Deuteronomy where the people in the wilderness, it says that God led them into the wilderness and he caused them to be hungry in order to test them to see what was in their hearts. And he says, in the hunger, he also provided them what they needed, their food. And it was to teach them this lesson. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, or 8, verse 3. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is the lesson of Israel, the lesson of appetite? Yes, bread is essential to life. But life is more than food. The stark reality, one commentator says, was that even though the people had this daily supply of food, none of them survived. They had plenty to eat, their stomachs were full. But every person in this generation died. Joshua, Caleb, with the exception. You can have all your heart's desire and it will still end in death. On the other hand, he says, if you make the Lord your heart's desire, it will always end in life. Your life is not getting more bread. <laughs> it's not about daily sustenance to survive because we will die and I think the, the message of this test is to invest in what will have you live forever. All right, how do we do that? Last week, I introduced the practices of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And we said that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. If you want to win the battle in the wilderness against your foe, it takes preparation before you get there. Not just in the moment. It takes preparation before you get there. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. And the two disciplines that we see in Luke chapter 4 are the disciplines of fasting and solitude, of getting alone and giving up food. For 40 days, Jesus is drawing on the strength of this. I loved hearing that it was beautiful and exciting and that it was difficult and troubling. And I loved hearing, even this morning, you saying, I'm going to do it again this week. Because this is a discipline that you get stronger the more you do it, like exercise. One of our mentors for Kelsey and me, a guy named Dave, he says, why his family and his church embrace fasting? He says, in a world that is constantly telling us to fulfill ourselves, we find it important to deny ourselves, to find space, to listen to it. That's, that's what we're going to practice again this week. If you didn't do it the first week, that's okay, we got, we got a lot of weeks left in this life, Lord willing. And if you did do it this, this first week, 
didn't you experience something that was, that is almost drawing you in? The, the act of denial is a way of growing you. So what would it look like for you to practice this week an hour, just one hour of solitude and fasting? You can certainly, I, not one hour of fasting. You've been fasting the last hour today. That's not what I'm talking about. 24 hours, of one day of fasting plus one hour of solitude. What would it look like for you to step into that? To help with this, we've created a, a guide that kind of walks you through um, a, a set rhythm. You can do this in one hour, and I encourage you to do it on the day that you're fasting. Would you fast for 24 hours someday this week? Um, I'm probably going to do again Thursday night to Friday night. I came home last week, and I told, told everybody Thursday night to Friday night, and Kelsey's like, I'm not doing that day. I was like, okay, that's great. If you want to do a different day, that's just try to find a day where you can do it. I heard from some other people who were like, you know, I have a health condition. If your doctor would not approve you fasting, please don't do it. We can find another way to exercise spiritual discipline. Um, others said, my doctor is actually requiring me to fast for a procedure I have this week. And I was like, okay, it counts double. Just pursue God in, the, in that fasting. But here's just a, a short guide to kind of ask you some questions to reflect on appetite this week as we fast. I think one of the greatest tools that we have for growing in our self-denial is the practice of abstaining from food. Yeah, you can abstain from Twitter. You can abstain from Netflix or screens or from coffee or caffeine or whatever it is. But can you stop eating for a day? Um, when you stop eating for a day, you will notice the craving and the desire. This is good because you're getting... You're growing those, those muscles. Okay, so you got the exercise this week. One hour, practice solitude. 24 hours, can you practice fasting? We're going to do this next week as well. And then the week after that, we're going to practice feasting instead of fasting, um, which should be really popular. Amen. Yes. Okay, let, let me just end with this. Um <clears throat> In, in scripture, I was talking about people, they take and they give. This is the language of Genesis 3. Eve, she sees something that's desirable and it's food. She takes it, gives it. This is a recurring theme I pointed out. Do you remember the story of Sarai and Abram? He promises them this child. It's not food, it's a, it's a child. They, they so desperately want want this. And says that, that Sarah, it says she took Hagar and she gave Hagar to her husband. You see the cycle. It, it's not just food. It's not just... It's children. In, in Israel, Exodus 32, the, the people, they take all their jewels. They get all their gold. It says they take it and they give it to Aaron. Aaron says, I, I took it, I, I gave it, and out came this calf. <laughs> we should worship this thing as Yahweh. It's, it's jewelry. It's stuff. David is, it says that he is, he's on the roof, and he, he sees this woman who's desirable. She's beautiful. And she's doing like a ritual purification act. Um, he desired it. It says that he, he took her. 
And then a few verses later, it says that he assigned Uriah to the place on the front line in the next battle. It's that word gave. He took it and he gave. It's sex. It's children. It's stuff, gold. It's food. And then this cycle is just running through so many stories in the Old Testament. But then it comes to Jesus. And Jesus is talking about desiring something. Luke 22. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired to eat. He's, he's recalling the garden story. He's recalling the wilderness story. He's, he's recalling all of these stories of testing and temptation. But it says that he took the bread and he gave thanks. And he broke it. And he gave it to them. It's subtle, but do you see it? Do you see the exchange? Do you see the reversal of somebody who takes and gives? The, the human nature that all of us have lived into is to take, to take, to take, to seize, to grasp, to hold on to. But then comes this guy. <laughs> the, it's not just the practices of Jesus. The practices of Jesus will not save you. They can strengthen you. It is the person of Jesus who will save you. Because when he was in the test, he does the great reversal. He took bread, he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body given for you. This is what it looks like to be the son of God. This is the new covenant in my blood. And in him, only in him is our identity secured because of his body and because of his blood, not our own record. He alone is, is the one who can reverse it. Let me ask you, would you stand? I just want to read these words over you from Philippians 2 and then we'll be done. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to grasp, to hold on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord God, we praise the name of Christ Jesus, our King, who became like us, who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, and who won the victory over sin and death and has rescued us from its, from its clutches. Father, transform us, strengthen us, even this week as we pursue you by the power of your Spirit to be faithful children, secured in the blood and the body of Christ our King. In his name, amen.